This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the Arden Labs podcast, our special guest today, all the way from Colorado, where actually it's warmer than in Miami, Camden Cheek. Do you believe this? I saw on the news yesterday that Miami was colder than a town in Alaska for like for like an hour. Oh, that's wild. No, I was like, I was like, I'm moving to Alaska. That's it. It's warmer up there. I mean, we're talking, it was like 54 degrees in this town, and we were at like 37 or something and i have a buddy i have a buddy up there i was gonna call him up and say dude i'm 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 flying up my beach gear (laughs) (laughs) vacation time in alaska have you ever been to alaska alaska is so cool dude i I went during the summer so it was beautiful and sunny for like 20 hours a day Anyway, I moved to Miami from New York because I just hate being cold. And here I am being cold in Miami. So it's, you'll always hear me rant about this when it happens every year. So that's, that's on me. All right, Camden, enough about that. Um, give everybody who's listening a couple minutes about what you're doing today. Just kind of focus around what you're doing today. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I am a software developer at Sourcegraph. Um, We make a code search intelligence platform. Um, I work on mostly the the search backend. Um, So this is like the query parser, the query engine, uh, the indexing. Um, uh, Our stack is almost entirely in Go. uh, So I spend a lot of time uh, digging through some of the quirks of Go and trying to make it more stable and uh, work more consistently. How long are you? How long have you been there? Uh, two years now. Oh man! You know, I I love that company. Early on, when I got into Go, um, met the founders and had spent time over there. And the, I don't know if you still have that office in San Francisco, but got a chance to get over there. And do you have have? You have the office over there still? You no, had that... no, it's gone. <laughs> no, it's gone. It doesn't make sense to have an office anymore. But it was a beautiful space. It had a big glass room and it was all open. And but I yeah, I've heard good stories. <laughs> <laughs> I I love what Sourcegraph is doing. The funny thing for me is, you know, I focus ninety nine percent of my time on Go, and so for me, the Sourcegraph tools don't come in handy because I kind of already have everything wrapped up in my head and the editor does what I need. But anytime I have to look at a project in a different programming language, source graph is there to save me, especially if it's a node JavaScript kind of thing. I I couldn't live without it. Right. Yeah. I know I could spend like three hours getting my editor all set up with the code navigation and syntax highlighting and all that. And like I use NeoVim, so it's a little bit of a, (laughs) <laughs> it takes some work, um, but uh, it's it's great to be able to just hop into a new code base, browse around. Yeah, I use the GitHub plugin mostly when I'm in that situation, 
and it's just amazing and how fast it is too in in the early days you used to be able to go on the home page and plug in a, a repo and it would just like auto index it for you right there and then you could start going i don't know if you still have that feature or not yeah we do um it's we have partially disabled it on sourcegraph.com um because there are millions and millions of repos that are <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, public, but yeah, it's it's pretty great. But the the revenue model is the is the enterprise version, right? Where companies can install their own so Surfgrass yeah. server to help with the productivity. What, I mean, I'm I'm guessing you're seeing shops that are mostly polyglot, where they're where they're managing a lot of different code bases in different languages. Yeah, we see a lot of value from companies that either have really old code bases uh, or really large code bases. Um, so, for example, banks have huge amounts of code that, you know, maybe hasn't been touched in 10 years. Uh, but when it needs to be modified for whatever reason, trying to figure out where you're going and what you're doing is difficult to do without having all of the code there at your fingertips. Uh, right. Okay. You said banks. So are you by any chance supporting languages like Fortran and Cobalt? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, we've had requests. We, we don't support go-to definition in Cobalt. <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty wild though, man. Like, it would be. I would almost like beg you guys to, to support like those, those two legacy languages. That would be absolutely wild. Wow. I didn't even think about that. So the banks are probably mostly like Java, C sharp. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I, I think you need to make it your mission to get Cobalt indexed. When you, when you have to bring in a new language, what's even involved in that? We like support non-code intelligence stuff just by default, because most everything's just text files, right? Um, so then on top of that, you can add like a layer of highlighting. Um, and that's fairly easy to do. There's open source highlighters for most every language. Um, but then the like code intelligence side of things is a lot more involved. Um, so we hire compiler experts for the languages that we want to support. And we, we have to plug into the compiler tool chain somehow. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. I was starting to wonder if you started writing like AI models or something like that chat GPT is a chat G that that thing's absolutely amazing dude anybody that wants to trash that tech should just like get out of tech because <laughs> I can't even comprehend how they have it generating code how they have it learning somebody put somebody from Arden put my name in there and it came back and said we, we don't know who Bill Kennedy is so they fed it a couple, just a couple little things about me. And it started like scarily. It was scary what it started saying about <laughs> me. And I went, I, I, I don't know if I'm excited or scared. Like, it was wild, dude. I don't know. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool stuff. We've got some, uh, some projects going on internally at Sourcegraph right now to see what we can do along those lines. Cause like Sourcegraph's kind of cool cause it has all your code already. Like it, it, we have that information. Um, so what we do with it is kind of, we've got a blank check for neat tech that we can build on top of that. That's wild. Okay, look, we're gonna get back to some of this stuff, but this podcast is about you, Camden. And I really wanna talk about you and your career and how you, 
how you got to SourceCraft. So <clears throat> just to set the stage a little bit for everybody, and I ask these questions to all of our guests, what year did you graduate high school? It's kind of a, a nice sort of uh, marker for time. Uh, I graduated high school in 2014. 2014 high school. Okay. You, you, would you, where, where were you in high school? You were in Colorado there? Or you lived somewhere else? No, I lived in Michigan. In Mich oh my God, Michigan. I, I don't know if I've ever been to Michigan. I just know one thing about Michigan. It's cold. Yeah. <laughs> Ain't going to get cold me there. and not very sunny. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. 2014 Michigan. So that's, that's when you're like 17, 18 years old. So that, that gives us a general sense of tech at the time. So favorite first question, Camden, favorite first question. Give me that first thought that pops in your head. Don't think too hard where you remember working on a computer uh, and it gave you that sort of sense of joy or you got it to do something that, um, you know, was like, wow. Oh yeah. Uh, I have a good one for this one. Um, I back in like middle school was really into RuneScape, right? And I got sick of chopping those Yule logs. Okay, wait a second. Eric is like laughing. Eric, you've heard of this game? <laughs> what is this game called again? RuneScape? Eric RuneScape. Is... Yep. Okay, Eric, when did you graduate high school? 2007. So seven years before Camden. And you know RuneScape? I've never heard of RuneScape. I always feel like I'm a... Now, I'm not a gamer. So, I mean, just to be fair. But now I feel like I'm out of this whole story. Eric said it's timeless. Anyway, go on, go on, go on, go on. Okay, so you're in middle school, which means it was probably like almost 2008. Like it's actually around that time. Yeah. You graduated 14, so minus 14 is 10, and now it's got to be like around eight. Yeah. 2008. Okay, so around that same time when Eric's graduating high school. Okay, Roomscape. Go on, go on, go on. So I guess sick of doing this really repetitive task that I wanted to do. Uh, so I wrote a little macro on my computer, I think with, uh, auto hotkey and just had my character repeatedly chop logs, go back to the bank, put them in and go back to chopping logs. <laughs> I have never seen Eric smile this brightly. <laughs> okay. And, and I know nobody can see or hear Eric right now, but I got to ask Eric a question. Eric, did you do the same thing? You wrote these keyboard macros to like speed up your Oh, he's smiling <laughs> because he's going, oh, my God, why didn't I think of this is why Eric is like H. Now, if you could write those scripts in HTML and CSS, Eric would have been all over it. That's, <laughs> that's what Eric does. But uh, Eric is just like, wow, why didn't I think of that? So do people still play this game? Is yeah, it still out there? Kind of a renaissance. <laughs> all right. We're going to have to put a link to it in the show notes. And I'm going to have to I'm going to have to look. It sounds like it's more text based maybe than graphical or something. It's not great graphics, but it does have graphics. <laughs> All right, Eric, we're going to you're going to hook me up with this after after the show. So, you had that moment where you were just like um, you know what? I I can't do this again. I I got to automate this. You had that automation sort of moment and you wrote a script and then you were just like killing it because you were able to chop down logs faster than anybody else. Yeah, then my my sister saw that I had done this and asked me to automate her farm in Webkins. Uh, so that was <laughs> the, the follow up to that. Is your sister older, younger? Uh, younger, younger. And then, but Webkins is a whole nother sort of platform, or is it the same sort of platform? Yeah. 
So then how would you, oh, because you were doing everything with, with like macros and keystrokes and stuff. So you were kind of, yeah. you were handling the almost, okay. So you were like automating, what were you using for that? Just a basic script, like shell script? Uh, I was using AutoHotKey. So it kind of lets you record a set of um, clicks, essentially. And then it spits out a program. And then you can edit the program to like fine tune it so that it's actually repeatable. Man, so you help your sister speed that up. You're, you're speeding it up. And now you're in middle school. So let's continue to talk about middle school. So I guess you're more of a, you're more gaming at that point. And this is more like these fun hacks that you figured out with this, this one program. So yeah, um, when you start high school, you're usually, I guess, 14 or so. When Actually, yeah, about 14 when you start high school here in the U.S. at least. Is there still any sort of um, interest in the computer stuff or you're kind of taking that general track that most of us in the U.S. do, like you're going into sports or music or theater or something other than? So I was very interested in bio. So I did a lot of biology type stuff. Uh, I ended up going to college for bioengineering. All right, but slow down. I don't want to talk about college just yet. I don't want to talk about college. But so you're, 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 so talk to me what somebody in high school can focus on if they're into bio, biology. Are you, yeah, fo tell me in Michigan, kind of where are you spending your time then? It's, it's, it's doesn't sound like it's really on the computer so much. It's outside. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I, I spent a lot of time on music and some sports and stuff like that, uh, outside of school. Um, school was focused on bio. I was always, I still had an interest in computers. So I like played a lot of games, um, like attempted to learn programming a few times and failed, uh, mostly just cause I didn't have any, I didn't have anything I wanted to do with but was that at home, like sitting at home in front of the computer and saying, you know, I want to, I want to do a little, what languages were you trying to learn? I tried Python and C++. Well, so the Python makes sense, but the C++ gets like, which one did you try first? Oh yeah. Uh, C++. Because <laughs> it's the fastest. <laughs> ah, I, yeah. I want to work with the fastest programming language. So the slowest one to write, but fast once you get it. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like if I had anyone that was like mentoring me here, I'm sure they would tell me that's dumb. Like just use a nicer programming language, but. But Python was, Python I, wasn't a bad choice. I mean, Python's like, I think it would be a good first programming language. Yeah. Yeah. Python was, I mean, like I got as far as getting it running and getting hello worlds and like a couple starter projects going but I, i'm kind of curious if you can remember kind of what grade you were in when you were doing that what was your thought process there was it like actually i'm kind of curious to think what was going on in your head at the time when you're like you know what i'm going to spend some time learning a programming language what was what was the end game for you at that time um i don't think there was an end game honestly i i liked learning I was good at computers. Learning a programming language seemed like the the right thing to do to become better at computers. Um, but did you have classes in school? I mean, I'm kind of trying to get a sense of where the thought of even a. I I know you were doing some like scripting and stuff, but 
you didn't have classes. I mean, you should have had classes in school by 2014, 13, 12. They weren't teaching any form of programming then? They had one intro to programming class that was started in my senior year of high school. And it was like, I, I think it was um, programming in Alice, which is like some graphical... I, Eric's shaking his head too. Man, do I feel like I'm completely out of it? I'm not sure I heard of Alice. I wonder how many people listening to this have heard of... I'm looking that up while we talk here. I hadn't heard of it outside of this class, so... (laughs) Alice programming. Alice is an object-based educational programming language with an integrated development environment. I see. Released in 1998. Platform is Java. Okay. I guess that's fair. A lot of times, you know, in high school, they throw a teacher at this who doesn't tend to have a lot of programming experience, but maybe has a math or a science background and agrees to do it. So it would make sense to choose kind of a language like that. But it doesn't seem like that got you very excited. Or, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you took the class. It wasn't that exciting. No, I didn't take the class, actually. Some of my friends did. Okay, so... You're in high school. You're doing the, the the average things that we tend to do in high school. Um, you've been using a computer mostly for gaming. Though you've had these moments of some form of programming, and now you got to figure out what you want to do after high school. And as you said, you were really interested in in biobiology related stuff. So my guess is you're thinking I'm going to go to university and become a biologist, and then work out in the ocean down in Miami, of course, because it's warmer. <laughs> no, <laughs> no I, like, what are, you, what are you thinking going into into university? Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking like medical devices. Um, oh, not like, okay, you know why? Because down here, anytime I meet somebody who's into like biology and stuff, it's it's literally like out in the field with animals. So that's where my brain was going. But you're thinking medical device which is all C, C++ programming. Were you thinking like on the engineering side of medical devices and what device did you have in your head that you thought needed to be worked on? Yeah, I mean, like I, at this point I was not really thinking computers. Um, I was thinking more traditional engineering, like hip and knee implants, um, improving reliability, like working with new material science, Stuff like that. Where did that come from? The idea of working on that kind of stuff? Honestly, I think it was kind of seeded by the people around me because I was really into math um, and I was really into bio. Um, So those two things, like math, you'd send someone engineering, bio, you'd send someone biology. Combine the two, you get bioengineering and like medical device implants are, in my opinion, one of the more exciting ways to use that. Okay. You're not thinking about like uh, all that gene splitting and uh, cloning and all that kind of stuff, right? You're you're thinking, I want to... Yeah, not so much. Interesting. And I, you mentioned sort of knee and hip. So were there people around you that had knee and hip problems that you're focusing on that? Why not a new artificial heart? Uh, those were just kind of an example of the most visible... Uh, implants that I hear and know about like I was definitely thinking things like artificial heart or like uh, kidneys or whatever at that point then you're going to do your undergraduate work I guess the main focus is 
to get into a university where you can strengthen your math, right? I guess engineering or you're not going to, do you need to take biology classes? For, I guess you do. You need to know the physiology. So what is your thought then? Like what university and what, what were you going to study for your undergraduate? So I, I shopped around a little bit. Um, university of Michigan has uh, really, really good, both like biology, medical, um, and bioengineering program. Um, and it's in state for me. So tuition was considerably cheaper than it would be otherwise. Um, so it ended up just being kind of the, the natural place to go. Now, uh, so you went to, you went to university of Michigan, right? I mean, I'm a Notre Dame fan. I'm just going to tell you that right now, so just in case we're going to have a problem. <laughs> no, no, no. I, love, I love Michigan for those who not, uh, college football, like Michigan and Notre Dame are, are pretty good rivals. I I'd say pretty good rivals. So during football season, if I see somebody wearing a Michigan, anything, you know, I just yell, go Irish, you know, just to, <laughs> just to poke the bear. <laughs> I don't think we beat Notre Dame any of the four years I was at Michigan. <laughs> yeah, well, so. today's a completely different story. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I don't even want to play Michigan right now. The, the team is so good. But that's everything's in cycles, right? So, so that's how it is. Okay, so you go to university. You're, t tell me quickly about that first year because you don't get to take a lot of exciting classes that first year, right? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you took some math. You got it couple 100 level bio classes so as you get through that first year of university are you still interested in this path that you've quasi kind of set for yourself i i'm interested in what i think it can be i was not interested in the coursework i was doing so i i still had hopes that it would be better but honestly i just i, I didn't love the bio classes they were a lot of memorization um, which is not what I'm into <laughs> and I'm not very good at it. Uh, so it took a lot of work for things that I was no longer sure I wanted to do. It's funny because I dropped out of two history classes during undergrad because it was all memorization, especially dates. And I'm like dyslexic with numbers. So there was no way I like, even on the quizzes, I couldn't pass these quizzes. Everybody else, if you could memorize, you were going to get 100 in the class. If you couldn't, you were doing like what I was doing, which was barely 50%. I withdrew from those history classes um, almost immediately. So I, I feel you, man. I'm not – memorization is tough. And when you have a class like that, it's almost impossible. Because my daughter just – not just – I guess she's been a nurse now for a year. And I, I watched her study – and I can't even pronounce half the words that she had to like, If I can't spell it, I most definitely can't keep it in my head. And I couldn't even pronounce half the things that she was like. I, to me, it is super impressive. Doctors, nurses, anybody in that field that has to be able to memorize and regurgitate that information accurately because somebody's life's on the line at that point. I, and my brain just doesn't work that way. So I find it's – you ever go to a restaurant – and you're at a big party and the, the waiter, or the waitress doesn't write down a single order <laughs> and you're yeah. like, they're going to mess this up. I, I mean, parties of like even just six or more, four or more, and everything comes out perfect. 
And I'm just like, what are you doing here? I don't understand. <laughs> like, like my brain, if I could, if I had your brain, I, I'm, I can't even imagine where I'd be, you know? So you're, you're kind of down on the, on the way the classes are being taught and what are required after your first year, but do you stick with it? I do. Yeah. I, I stick with it. Um, I, my, the summer, my freshman year, um, I was looking for a summer job and like this is before you started university or after your after your first uh, year. Yeah, after my first year. Okay, okay. So you're the summer of going into your sophomore year. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I like didn't really have enough coursework under my belt to get a real like engineering internship, at least one that I would be interested in. Um ended up just working for some software company doing QA for them because it paid $15 an hour, which was better than I was going to make otherwise. How did you find that job for the summer? My girlfriend's roommate's boyfriend. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Girlfriend's college roommate's boyfriend. Okay. Uh, His dad worked for this company and, uh, said that they were like just looking for literally anyone who is reliable. Wow. So somehow this tech job, it's a tech job, uh, becomes available to you over the summer because they need anybody to help with QA. And you're like, whatever, I'll, I'll, you know, it's a job. $15 an hour is, is pretty good. Actually. I imagine you're working 30 hours a week at least. I mean, you can make enough money to have enough beer for the whole next semester at this point. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, but, so this is what I'm curious, right? Because, you know, companies don't have these QA departments anymore, which is wild to me because I always, I grew up in a career where we always had these QA departments. You know how important they are. Um, but it's also such a tedious job. So what was the software that you had to QA and did you enjoy that? Was it, I mean, you'd have, you have to have a mind that can really get into detail and repetitiveness without it, without going insane. So we were uh, working on basically like enterprise application monitoring software um, and I guess, and hardware monitoring. But uh, like the, the first part of the internship was essentially like, running monitoring software on all these really wild systems like um you're monitoring networks or software was sending out probes this part was monitoring uh like old operating systems um and like server rack equipment things like the hpucks or um old unixes I'm trying to remember when I started in the industry back in 90, I mean, I'm trying to think when I started, like 94, there was this thing called SNMP, I think, which would, I don't know if that's what you guys were working with, but it would allow you to kind of monitor everything on the, including network and software was, was it like SNMP kind of stuff? That was one of the data sources we used. Yeah. And you had to install these nodes or agents on those machines and, and get it all configured. And, and that, that was their product. I guess the dashboard was their product. Did you enjoy doing that QA work at the time? Or was it just a job at 15 bucks an hour that was going to have you allow you to buy beer in a couple months? A 
little bit of both. Um, it was, it was repetitive. Um, but like I got to use a lot of technology that I would otherwise have no excuse to use like a bunch of databases. And I didn't even know what a database was at that point. Like <laughs> it got me a lot of exposure to a bunch of wild things in tech, which was fun. All right, but the job's now over. You got to go back to university. You got to go back into your path of bioengineering. And I'm just wondering, is that, was that experience strengthening your idea that you're going in the right path or started to make you doubt that maybe you wanted a different path on the engineering side, I think, obviously, but. So I started shaping my education a little more. Um, started leaning towards classes that were more computationally based, um, started taking classes that were more on the modeling side of things than the uh, experimental side of things. Um, but they were still good towards your graduation. I mean, they were credits. That... Yeah, that was the nice thing about Michigan was it's a huge school. So there's a really wide variety of classes I can choose from. But for your major, I mean, you're usually still locked into a certain set of, right? That's the 60 credits of kind of liberal studies, right? I mean, there's always the other 60 that it's a much smaller subset of classes, isn't it? Or still it's Michigan. So it's a wide, it's still wide open. You have a lot of, uh, like they, at Michigan, we had like slots and there were some classes that were just required, like organic chemistry. It had to take that. There were other slots that were like, you can take one of any of these classes and that fulfills your requirement there. And so when there was the option to take a more computationally focused one, or when there was an option to take a normal class that I could kind of do the projects in a more computational way, I chose to do that. You started university after high school. So it means like fall of 2014, assuming you did your four year stint, like you're you're graduating in the summer of 18, I guess. Um, did you end up graduating with that degree that you started with? Yeah, I did. Uh, I went through it. I was doing like a, it's kind of a sunk cost thing. <laughs> I, at some point I got far enough in and I was doing a combined bachelor's and master's that I was like, you know, it's probably just worth it for me to get my master's, see what I can do after college and make the best of it. So, so wait, 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 don't, don't go that far. So you finish your undergraduate degree and then you decide you want to do your master's or you somehow were able to do both at the same time. I did both at the same time. There is like a, a five-year program at Michigan um, that let you kind of roll some of your undergrad credits into a master's in biomedical engineering. At any time, I, I thought I heard you say, and I, I want to explore this a little bit. Was there a point where you just you felt you were pot committed? Like, I really don't want to do this anymore, but I'm already three years in, so I'm going to finish it? Yeah, I mean, at, at the three-year mark, I, I kind of knew I didn't really want to go into medical devices. Did you get any internships with medical device? Like, that first summer was QA. Your second summer... Was that anything different? Uh, second, so first summer was QA. Second summer was at the same company doing um, like DevOps stuff. Third summer, I decided to actually like give my major a chance and spent a summer researching um, HIPAA knee implant reliability. 
was that a comp like you got a job doing that or was it just you researching on the side? No, this is me working with a professor at Michigan. Okay. 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 So you're, you finish that third year, you still over the summer start to decide, I'm going to look deep into it. And now you're starting your, your senior year and you're like, this is not really what I want to do. You know, by the way, everybody knows this anyway, but like I got seven kids, five in my first marriage and two I've adopted. When they hear this, they're going to be like, ah, yeah. But two of my daughters went through the same thing. They finished their third year of university and decided the major they started was not the major they they wanted. And it's the same idea. You're pot committed here. Like, what are you going to do? Like, get that degree and then just change what you want to do in a graduate level. I, like, one of them was in education, and she said, I don't want to be in the classroom anymore. I'm like, well, finish your education degree without being in the classroom. The other one was journalists. And she decided she wanted to go into um, like criminal justice at that point. But I was fortunate enough to convince them both to finish the degree because they were down to those last two kind of semesters. Yeah. Um, and it was stressful for everybody at that point, right? And I feel like you're in the same thing. You're three semesters in. You're like, I don't want to do this anymore. But you're 30 credits away from at least getting the undergraduate degree it sounds like you decided to do the same thing let me just finish that but then i'll tack on the another year what was your master's in uh biomedical engineering so technically my undergrad was just straight biology okay but when you do that last year master's in the bioengineering i thought you already said to me you were kind of like this was not what i wanted to do so what did you focus on in that year yeah, so that year was a, a little nicer because it's much easier to choose computational classes in an engineering discipline than it is in a pure biology discipline. There were a lot of choices for doing research with like simulation and machine learning and finite element analysis, like all of these computational methods for studying the human body that really allowed me to still do a lot of software without having to dump my major. Okay, time out, time out, time out. I mean, we're talking 2019, so I heard some interesting things here. The first thing, I guess, is you must have also had to take a lot of math, sort of, like, what was that, what was that, like, that hardest math class that you had to, I mean, you had to, a calculus, obviously, differential, like, all that... What level of math did you end up reaching to be able to do this stuff? I made it through differential equations, which at Michigan was like after Calc 1 through 3. There were a lot of other like very math-heavy physics classes, but the highest level of math that I attempted to take was a um, complex analysis class. It was uh, one of the things listed on the classes that I could take. Uh, and it fit into my schedule really nicely. And I'm like, sure, I'll do that. Um, turns out this was like a class for high-level math majors. Um, I'd never taken a proof-based math class before, so jumping into this was nuts. I spent like 25 hours on it a week uh, and then still ended up... Because you, you, didn't, you didn't have the pre-classes for that class. Right, yeah. 
at that point, I'm almost wondering why you don't have a, a minor in math. If you have to take all those other math classes, you're almost like really close to a minor in math. So a math minor would have been um, a lot more of those proof-based math classes. Um, I did not take any of those. So I took all of the engineering focused one, like calc and differential equations. Um, so t talk to me now about the, the simulations you were able to do. Was there specialized software? Is it CAD software? Is it something else where, what do you get to kind of engineer a knee and see how it's going to function in a, in a human body? Is that, is that how that software works? Yeah, that's the idea. Um, you've got a, basically a CAD model. Um, that's just like a meshed version of your thing. You have the material properties of the thing that you're modeling, um, like the its response to stress, its fracture. Uh, it's like, uh, what do you call it? But basically all the material properties uh, that you'd be working with. And then you can um, test how it would respond to certain forces. So knee forces are really well studied. We know pretty much exactly how much force is applied at every uh, every point in a stride. Um, so we can use that to model some like bounds of statistical, this is how long it's likely to last, this is how many cycles it's likely to last, and use that to kind of predict what might be good tweaks to the design. Have you heard of a product called Kitty CAD? It just came up on my radar screen because Jessica, I'm using Jesse Frizzell just became the CEO over there. She's, when it comes to hardware and like, like really low level engineering, she's, she's amazing. And she just became the, the CEO over there. And it's, if you go to the website, Kitty, kittycad.io, um, it might be interesting because they're kind of like trying to take CAD to a updated level. Like, I think the idea was that the CAD software that exists was all kind of revolutionized back in the 80s and the 90s, and it needs some form of an upgrade, and they're, and they're working on that. You might find it interesting just because you, you had to play with some of that. Yeah. Or you did I'll play with some of it. Yeah, Kitty, K-I-T-T-Y CAD. I never um, found a cat piece of CAD software that I really could say I liked. <laughs> well, uh, this could be this could be it right here. You know, it could be actually after the show. If you do look at it, I'm super interested in your thoughts because I've never had to work with. I've had to install some of this stuff for um, engineers when I was doing internships between semesters, but I never had enough chops to actually play with it. So. It might be, uh, I don't know, do you, do you, I don't want to jump too far ahead in the timeline, but do you still, if you were to install this, I guess you would still have ideas that you might want to play with, and it, it could be interesting to see how it works. Yeah, mostly I use CAD now for like woodworking projects, uh, oh. not so much hip implants. Which, but... <laughs> which CAD software are you using? Um, I've used a few different ones. I've Okay. I've not used any single one enough to say that's the one I'm using. <laughs> All right, so this is you're brilliant. You're, you're brilliant for for Kitty Cat. Then, so we got to try to get you. I don't know how it works. I know you can register. I don't know how it works, but I would be super interested in you installing this software at some point and trying to do your next woodworking project, and then getting a sense of are they modernizing it or not? Like, 
I think you would be perfect for them to kind of do a case study around. I'll try it out. So you decide you're going to stay one more year to finish your master's degree. You're not going to jump into industry. I'm actually kind of interested in that. Did you feel like you needed that extra year of school to be to get the jobs you wanted? Or did you just feel like you just wanted to stay in school for another year because you were kind of comfortable there? Yeah, I think mostly that one. I Because of the way the master's and the bachelor's overlapped, I would have only been able to cut off one semester. Opportunity cost of one more semester at school for having a master's on my resume seemed worth it, even if it wasn't a master's and the thing that I was looking to go into. But what is your master's in? I mean, it's still a, a bioengineering degree, right? But you didn't want to do implants anymore, basically. So as you now know that you're about to graduate, and it's like the summer of 2019, where's your head? Where are you throwing your resume around? What companies are you looking at? Uh, well, mostly I just looked at the company that um, I interned at. I kept a relationship with them. Um, the QA company, the company you were doing QA work at? I don't understand that. They're not doing bioengineering. Well, at this point, remember, I had already decided I don't really want to do bioengineering. Bioengineering was a great application of software, and software was what I really enjoyed doing. Interesting to me is that, I, and maybe I'm wrong, but the engineering you were doing in university had to be much more technical than the, than the engineering you were doing at that company. The amount of time actually writing software or like working on implants in industry is not what I wanted. It's like medical implants are slow. Like you go from design to like actually having it in a person over the course of like 10 to 15 years. Right, right. You got to do studies. You got to tweak it. You need approval. You, yeah, yeah. It's too slow. I've heard other people like they wanted to be like in, in the UN you know, trying to do things and, and coming up with the same conclusion. Like, it's just too slow. Like, I can't, can't wait that long to find out whether it worked or not because now I just spent 10 to 15 years and if it doesn't work out, like, I'm not going to get that time back. With software, I have a 30-second feedback cycle. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so did you end up getting a full-time job with that company after yeah, you graduated? So you kept working for them then, I'm, I'm assuming, over the summers, and then you got a job. But what was the first role? So we're now talking like summer of 2019. What, what was the first role that you, full-time role, I guess, that you had there? So the first full-time role, I got uh, put on like a kind of like a side team in the company that was building monitoring integrations for software in Go. Um, so it was, uh, actually working with, it was a programming job or was a go programming job. It was, and you had no program, you, <laughs> no. you have honestly no <laughs> programming experience coming out of university at all. You've never even looked at a language. You haven't, I mean, you haven't even looked at a programming language really since middle school. So this is like mind boggling. Is this just like they said to you, this is open. Do you want to try it? Or did they kind of just put you like. How does that happen? Well, uh, so my my sophomore summer, I was working with them doing like DevOps stuff. So slightly more towards programming, um, a lot of like cloud formation templates and stuff like that. 
but then like in school I did a lot of programming as part of my uh my major so I was pretty fam- familiar with the like basic concepts of programming um like I understood all the for loops and threads and uh like general software structure um and they knew me from my previous internships um they knew that I could like they've seen me pick things up fast that I'm not familiar with so they were willing to um take a chance and give me an opportunity to just try it out and see what I could do did you enjoy that part of the of your degree when you were doing that level of programming that when that opportunity came, you said, I want to do that full-time, hedge down. Yeah, I, I really did. But you weren't using Go. You were probably, what were you using in university to do the programming that you were doing? C, Python? Uh, Python, MATLAB. Um, MATLAB. Yeah, a lot of MATLAB, fortunately. Um, unfortunately or fortunately? Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I never played in MATLAB. I, I was walking around... I might have been a, a conference and I saw this shirt with a weird formula on it. So I looked it up and it had something to do with math lab. And I was like, I guess anybody who knows math lab would have recognized this, this formula or something. I don't know. I've never got, I've never needed to play with math, uh, math lab. So, all right. So you get put on this development team. And now you have to learn go. How was that having to learn? I guess, it just felt natural to you with the other stuff you were doing? Go has its quirks, but it's not a particularly difficult language to learn. Um, and the the things we were using it for are like basically making network requests to get data and putting that data on a standard format. Like that's, that's stuff that is a pretty low bar to getting something working and being successful. So yeah, I jumped into it, spent a couple of weeks just learning Go and started writing software. So I'm kind of curious because you're writing, I don't know if you're writing a service or little programs that are waking up, reaching out to some networked device, pulling data back, massaging it and putting it somewhere. How are you running these programs in that shop? Were they literally like Lambda sort of just or cron jobs or was it a service on a timer? What was, how did that work? Yeah, it was a service that was uh, run via a basically like a supervisor service. Um, so they were all built in the same format so that they could be controlled by the supervisor service and configured the same way. And then the supervisor service would execute the, the binary every like 60 seconds or so. Uh, so the supervisor service was like the scheduler. Yeah, would yeah. just execute that program. It was like a, a higher level cron sort of function. Okay, no, but that's cool, right? Like you don't, need, you didn't need more than that. It was, it was just what. And then you can have n number of programs, put it on a schedule, and let it and let them run. How big was this team that you joined full time? Uh, there were four of us. You being probably the the had the less least experience in writing all this did you have at the time a a a dev process with github and pull requests and were you learning all of that code reviews yeah i was familiar with 
GitHub and Git. Um, I used it in college for all my software stuff. Um, I was like very interested in open source as a concept. So I like had engaged with some open source projects on GitHub before. So I kind of had a, a general understanding of standard software practices. I'm I'm curious about two things in this in this job. One is, do you feel I don't need the number, but do you feel like the salary was average, below, or kind of above? And even thinking about it now, like industry, did you eventually get bored writing the same software over and over again? Which is, I get a sense of that's what you were doing. So salary was good for someone with no experience in software outside of college. I, that was good. So you felt like you felt like the compensation was equitable to your experience level and you were kind of grateful to have gotten that first job because you, I got so many people now in my life who need that first job and it's almost impossible to get, you know, even me, when I graduated university in the winter of 91, it took me eight months to find my first job and I took it for 18,500 a year. This is 1992. That was not a good salary, but I had no choice because I had to start developing a resume and I worked there for two years. And then I, and then I left to Miami and, and got, you know, almost doubled my salary overnight. But if I didn't have those two years, that wouldn't have happened. I guess the other side of this is like, I was going into this or like I was leaving college kind of expecting, um, bioengineering salaries, which are considerably lower coming straight out of college. Really? What were the numbers in your, what, what were, what was those expectations? Um, like lower, like, like 30K lower? Like 40 to 50K. Okay. So still like a middle the road salary, um, but not, not software. <laughs> Yeah, like twenty dollars an hour. I mean, you were getting, you were making yeah, fifteen already exactly. as a, a, a as a side gig. There, they were going to basically another five or six dollars an hour more for for those jobs there. How long did you stay at this company as the as a full time developer? So I stayed there two years. You started like the summer of nineteen. So you're there two years, nineteen twenty twenty one. So you're there during the pandemic. Essentially, pandemic starts in the U.S. in February of 20. I only know that because that's when I got grounded. My last <laughs> flight was basically the first week in March. I got back and never flew again for two years. So, you know, you're like, you've got this job now at the beginning of the pandemic. And you kind of stay there throughout because the pandemic kind of really starts to end in the middle of 21, right? Well, so I started there summer of 2018. Um, so then ended summer of 2020. So, so you were working full time when you were doing your masters? Uh, no, 2018 was right after I graduated. 2014 to 2018. Oh, so oh, so you were able to do the masters and the undergraduate in four years? Yeah. Oh, I, I tacked another year there. on, thinking you needed <laughs> another year for that. Okay, so you started the summer of 18. And then you were basically there for two years, 19, and you went there and you worked there through the pandemic. How, how was it working through the pandemic? Because I imagine now you all stopped going to the office. You had to switch 
to remote work. So talk a little bit about that transition for you and your team. You got to start using Zoom. Like what tools were you using to stay connected to everybody? A lot of Zoom. <laughs> um, we use Zoom and Slack. Honestly, like the at the point that the pandemic hit, I was doing some fairly like independent heads down work. Um, I had switched from doing monitored, monitoring integrations at that point. So there was a lot less, um, a lot less team coordination than there had been. Um, and I think part of that was due to the pandemic and part of that was just due to the, the nature of the, the work, but it, it was difficult. Um, like working at home all the time for a company that does not was not set up for remote work to be like part of its standard practices um took a lot of adjusting process and making things work smoothly again did you hire at all during that time were there new team members coming on board at all that you also had to sort of onboard and begin to work with in this new environment no we did not um at this point I, yeah i don't think we hired between the time that the pandemic started and when I left. So then, you know, the pandemic, at least in my area of the country, by the middle of 21 is really, start nobody's going back to the office yet, but though, honestly, Florida kind of opened back up in the summer of 20, believe it or not. I never really felt the pandemic. I felt it for three months, like as opposed to my friends in California that were really sort of the whole city locked down for two years. Or in Florida, I by the summer of 20, uh, Fort Myers Beach was already opening up. And I, so I feel, I kind of feel like a little lucky that I was in Florida at the time, because even just those three months were, remember, I'm living on a plane, I'm flying everywhere all over the planet. Now I'm kind of like locked in an apartment. Even just those three months were hard. I can't, I can't imagine doing the two years. Um, but you're still, I guess at that point, remote, even in the middle of, of 21. So what's, what's happening that you leave this company? I guess you joined SourceGraph at that point. So tell me a little bit about what's happening that you start looking for work or did this SourceGraph kind of jump on your, in your lap? Talk a little bit about what, what's happening there. Yeah. So I had, I had been working on a big project at this first company. Um, and it was kind of like getting to the point where I could call it complete enough to hand off. And I was really happy with it. I was really proud of it. Ready to do something new, though. Um, I was also ready to move to a company that had remote work kind of figured out in its, yeah, <laughs> its whole process. So yeah, like Sourcegraph was remote before the pandemic even. Um, so they had built their company with this in mind and built all the processes around that. Okay, but how does SourceGraph get on your radar screen? Because you're in this, I'm gonna call it a fairly small company in Michigan. You're not going to conferences. You're not, maybe you're doing some meetups online. Like how does SourceGraph end up on your radar screen? Uh, the who's hiring thread on Hacker News. Oh, okay. I just happened to browse it one day, um, saw SourceGraph, it looked pretty cool, um, and then checked them out and their transparency, um, like just browsing through the handbook was really, really refreshing. 
like, I was like, wow, there's never really been a company I've looked at before that has like, I really want to work there um, rather than I would work there. Were there other companies you were looking at over a period of like, let's say six months? So you would just every once in a while to scratch an itch, you would just kind of look and then eventually see Sourcegraph or was it, was Sourcegraph one of the first companies you actually looked like? I'm, I'm kind of curious, were you already looking and this is the first one that was interesting or? I was not job searching at the time. Um, the, the Hacker News post caught my eye and was like, well, I mean, maybe I'd consider taking another job. Um, so then I reached out to the recruiter um, and started the conversation. At the same time, my partner and I decided we wanted to move away from Michigan. So it was like good timing to just kind of switch everything up at the same time. Because <laughs> you both, is your partner in tech too? Yeah, yeah, she is. Okay. And I guess she's working remote as well. So at that point, you can live anywhere you want. So yeah, exactly. Okay. Why I want to talk about, <laughs> I do want to talk about that, but let me get back to this for a second because what's in this question popped in my head. I am never on Hacker News website unless somebody posted something about me or something's being posted about a friend. Like, and I'm seeing it on Twitter, right? And then I'm like, okay, let me go check it out. Was Hacker News something that you kind of looked at regularly? And I'm kind of curious on why and how did that get on your radar screen? Yeah, I mean, Hacker News is my procrastination tool. <laughs> I, I browse it pretty regularly. I I think the the articles posted there are interesting and it kind of keeps me plugged in with things that are happening in the tech world. When did you first discover Hacker News? Was that something you, you found in university? Was it when you were interning at this job? How, how does that pop up? I'm not sh entirely sure. It's, I guess like it probably started looking at it sometime in college. I've never thought about using it to kind of keep up with what the, I, to me, it's like a, honestly, to me, it's like a gossip site or it's a venting sort of site. So <laughs> I, 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 I never thought about using it to keep up with what was happening in the world or industry. I guess I use Twitter search a little bit to see what's trending, but I never thought about using uh, Hacker News for that. So that's interesting actually. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I like it because there are a lot of very opinionated people on it that will, uh, be loud about their opinions. Um, I get a lot of a lot of hot takes. No, that's fair. I I I try to keep as I get older, even more so. I kind of stay off of Reddit, and I think I've stayed off of Hacker News only because I try to keep all that negative energy away from me. And it's just like I don't understand outside of the fact that life is too short, and time is the one thing you never get back. Why do you want to spend time writing something that's trashing other people, especially after they've like book reviews, somebody spends 12 to 18 months writing a book. <laughs> and the first thing somebody wants to do is trash it. I'm just like, I'm like, wow. Like you had nothing else to do in the last 15 <laughs> minutes, but to like do something positive, you know? So I just feel like there's just too much negative energy in those, 
in those spaces. But you sounds like, and and that's just me, right? It sounds like you don't see it as negative energy. You just see it as as the social discord or something that's that's current. Yeah, and you know, like I I won't try and claim that there's not a lot of the negative energy there. Um, I I tend to not be bothered by that very much. Um, I don't really engage. I mostly just observe. <laughs> that's really great. I I think that's an amazing personality trait because I think it's too easy and I I feel myself when you're being bombarded by all that kind of negativity it starts to turn my brain into negativity and I start to be negative about things right and I just don't I don't and I can catch myself now at 53 when you're when I was 23 you would never catch that because you just don't have enough experience um, but for you to be able to kind of shield your your mental, your emotions and like your mental thoughts away from that, I think is brilliant. I don't know if I've ever met anybody who has that capability. I, I mean, I, that's a beautiful personality trait. Where do you think you get that from? <laughs> did you, <laughs> oh, have I you know. seen that? In other words, did you see that same sort of thing in your parents or uncles or aunts or? Yeah. Yeah. My, my mom especially is very, uh, go with the flow. Um, let things roll off. <laughs> okay, so you 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 see for the first time you see a company that you've researched that looks like it would be a very positive place to work. Were you I'm actually interested in this. Were you concerned I mean they're a pretty I'm going to say hardcore go shop over there. I mean, they've been doing go for as long as I have and I imagine their code base is really good in terms of idiomatic go and things like that were you concerned at all like you didn't have enough experience oh, yeah. uh, going into that <laughs> company so but you said you know what i'm gonna try anyway right yeah I, I figured i'd just go for it worst thing that happens is they tell me no um but also at the time like this was coming right off a project i was really proud of so i was like I was pumped up. I have something good to put on my resume. Like this ended up being merged into open telemetry. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something that people know. Um, so I can point to that and be like, I made that. So I figured that was like something I could kind of leverage a little bit and maybe make them think I was a little more experienced than I was. And I don't know what they thought, but they hired me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that group over there was always more focused on people than full experience. You know, like I always say the last thing you want to do is hire a vampire. A vampire is somebody who just sucks all the happiness out of the room. I don't care how technically strong you are. If you're a vampire, it's not going to, you know, work out. And so I think they've always been good. Anybody that I've met over there that works over there has been a really solid human being top top to bottom no it's great like I, i've been i love working with everyone at sourcegraph it makes it really nice because uh when you trust everyone to be like a reasonable human being um it allows it, it gives people the opportunity to do things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to so even as like a more junior dev at sourcegraph um i could do a lot of things that probably had no business doing. 
you can make mistakes and you weren't going to get beat up for it. It was going to become a teaching moment and it was going to be constructive. And that gave you the freedom to experiment and do more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So when they offered you the job, I don't think you were surprised, right? You were just, what was your emotion, that feeling when they finally said, okay, we're hiring you Camden. I, I was a little bit surprised. Um, partially because just like I hadn't really fully thought through all of the changes in my life that were going on at the time. Um, <laughs> and also it like essentially doubled my salary. Like I, I wasn't expecting that when they came to me with the offer, I was like, okay. <laughs> no. And you got to act cool. You got to act yeah. like you're not surprised. You're about, okay. Yeah, that's fine. Right, yeah, yeah. And then like you turn them, you turn the camera off and you're like, and then you got to compose yourself. Yeah, no, no, I've been there, dude. Trust me. You got to act all cool, but in the head, you're freaking out. No, no, I've exactly. been there. Those are good. Um, yeah, and it's hard to say no to to that. I mean, other than the fact that it was going to be a positive place, right? Like, that's right. just the clincher. Yeah, exactly. But to me, it's almost validation that everything you'd done over the last two and a half years was the right path, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it felt right. So now... They offer you this new position. You got to tell the, I, I love this story, right? This is the hardest thing in the world. You got to go tell the other company that, that helped you your career that you're now leaving. How did they take it? You have to be instrumental to the operation at that point. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd, I'd done a lot of good work for them. Um, I told my boss, I had taken an offer at another, another company and he's like, you know, kind of saw this coming um like you seem like the kind of person who doesn't want to stay in, in one place doing the same thing too long um uh, which is true and then like asked if i wanted a counter offer and i i didn't really want to go through that so i told him no I, i'm i'm leaving but i still i'm still in contact with a few people at that company it was that's good. You didn't burn any bridges. That's that's the biggest thing. Man. The, the the universe, especially the tech universe, it's too small. So if you're burning bridges, you're it's you're not burning just that bridge. You can be burning bridges you haven't even gotten to yet. So that's brilliant. Okay. So you've got this new job. It's the summer of twenty one. Your 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 partner now, and you decide we don't have to be in Michigan anymore. So you decide to move to sunny Miami. No, not Miami. You decide, <laughs> you decide to go to Colorado. What, what town are you in? You're in Denver or Boulder or uh, somewhere in between? Denver and Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs. So why, why did you choose? You could be anywhere. You could go anywhere on the planet at this point. Right? I mean, you could even go to Europe at this I point. I mean, we talked about it. <laughs> and you decide a small town in Colorado. So I'm fascinated by this choice. We decided to stay domestic um, because it was still pretty unclear what the pandemic was going to look like and what international travel was going to look like. And like, we didn't really want to navigate all of that in another country. Um, so we decided to make our first move um, in the U.S. Colorado uh, was on our shortlist um, because we wanted to be more active outdoors. We wanted to go somewhere with more sunshine. Did you know that 
in Michigan this year, like until just a couple days ago, they only had five hours of sun in January. <laughs> what? In Michigan? <laughs> yeah, it's just like I didn't think you were that far. So I went to school in SUNY Potsdam, which is up by the Canadian border at the very tip of New York, you know, and I don't remember having just five hours of sun. I mean, dude, it was dark and cloudy all day and it was cold, but five hours, that doesn't make sense to me. How did that yeah, happen? It's the Lake Michigan, the lake, lake effect clouds. It just makes it overcast for months at a time. It's kind of miserable. I mean, I, I remember in Potsdam, the first snow would happen at the end of October, and then you kind of wouldn't see the sun again until March, you know? And then you'd have that Indi that week that they called it an Indian summer, yep. <laughs> where it would get to like 60 degrees, and we would go to Target or something and buy the kiddie pools, and we'd be outside in 60-degree weather swimming in kiddie pools because I mean, it's like minus 10 all the time. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, I, I, and then that's why I moved to Miami, dude. I just never wanted to do that again. But you went, you stayed cold. I mean, you went, do you like skiing? Is skiing something that you enjoy? It is, yeah. Um, we, like, we don't mind the cold. It's more of the, the sun. So even during the winter here, when it's cold out, the sun comes out and, like, it still feels nice. So we do enjoy skiing. We enjoy hiking. Um, I've gotten into mountain biking. It's a great place for all of those things. Yeah, if you're an outdoors person and you and you want to um, you want to be involved in that, then I guess it is. Um, like you don't want to come to Miami for that. It's just flat here. It's just <laughs> flat. Like even like as a runner, and I don't really run anymore, but it's boring, you know. So here, it's all about water sports. So if you're into diving, ocean, jet skiing, um, fishing then this is kind of where you want to live here. And I, honestly, I'm not into any of that either. I just, I just like the heat. So I like being in the, this is tropical, actually. This is, I even say we're, you're not, I'm not even in the United States, really. The weather pattern here is more of the, you're more in the Caribbean when you're in Miami than you are the rest of the United States in terms of a weather system. So I kind of like that. And you've been, you've been there in Colorado sort of ever since so was it the right move for you Are you enjoying it there are you starting to kind of get an itch to explore another part of the country so yeah we really like it here um it's great and i think this will be our home base for a little while um we we're talking about uh getting an rv though and just kind of doing loops around the western u.s since we both work remote we can kind of do it from anywhere <laughs> okay so I i'm going to tell you this i had two employees who decided to do the same thing. One was just with his wife. The other one had a wife and two young kids. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> Which I really thought was crazy. Um, both of them, I don't even think lasted a year. Yeah. Before they realized that this was not the utopia that they thought it would be. And in many cases, what was really hurting them work-wise was bad internet. Mm, okay. So I'm just throwing this out at you that uh, it sound it's one of these things that sound more glamorous than it actually is. In fact, before you do that, I would want to connect you to both of these individuals <laughs> so you could at least get a general sense of what to prepare for if you do it. Yeah, we're looking at renting first. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And one of one of the uh, one of them had the 
the metal RV, you know, the round. Oh, the Airstream. The Airstream. And they ran into like a hailstorm. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. It's right. Completely destroyed that the home that they were in. So it just comes with a lot of like, I mean, you're on the road every day, right? So it comes with a lot of, of those challenges and internet woes. And uh, I'm not trying to discourage you. I, I'm sure that they would tell you for every negative thing that they experienced, I'm sure they tell you something <laughs> amazingly positive about it. But I know they both didn't last a year doing it. So I, I, I don't know. I think maybe if you're not having to work, it's a little easier. I don't know. Dude. I, I didn't experience. I have no desire to do that, to be honest with you. Like, I hate driving in general. So the thought of driving something that big all over the country is like stress for me. Yeah. But I think it would be interesting to, I know how, you know, you're getting, you're comfortable where you are, but you're still really young. So trying another area of the country might be interesting. Yeah. We've got a lot of time. I don't know. At one point we talked about like moving to Spain, which was. Yeah. Berlin. Go move. I want to live in Berlin for a couple of years. Like if I, if I had a place I could live for at least a year to Berlin, you'd go to Berlin, man. You're going to fall in love with Berlin. Got a, got a few coworkers in Berlin. <laughs> That's the place to go. Just sell everything, go there for one year, try it out. And I don't think you'll leave. That's a, that's a city where I've heard story after story of somebody going there for a week and never leaving. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. say, you know what? I'm staying here. I love that city. Okay, we've got about 10 minutes left, and I did want to um, ask you a couple of other things. You ended up on my radar screen for the podcast because you built some sort of concurrency package at SourceGraph, right? What What is that package called again? Uh, Conk. Yeah, C-O-N-C, right? Yep. Um, yeah, that came across my desk from somebody. So github.com slash SourceGraph slash um conk is that what you're calling it yeah and it's a package of some concurrency patterns that i'm assuming you built to help ease some of the pain at source graph with with the concurrent explain a little bit about how that package kind of came into being you've open sourced it and over the last few weeks i've seen a bunch of people in other words, somebody sent it across my desk. In fact, we talked a little bit about it over email too. I had some questions, but t talk about the the kind of the origin of this package and how it's being used in in SourceGraph. Problem that like a really common pattern is using these like uh, go routine pools or groups. Um, like you've got the the X sync error group package, which is pretty popular, and we've used it quite a bit at SourceGraph. And our SourceGraph backend has a lot of very highly concurrent code. Um, we have a lot of like streaming search results. We have a bunch of different backends that we uh, run requests to. Um, so these patterns are common and heavily used. Just after generics were released, I was like, well, this seems like a prime use case for trying out generics. Um, so I built this little internal package that, um, lets us kind of run a set of tasks concurrently and collect the results. Um, got some great feedback on it. It was pretty widely used. Um, we 
also a really common issue we have at Sourcegraph is like panics. <laughs> um, obviously, you never really want to have panics, but they happen. And when they do, I get paged. One of the things that the this Go routine package handled was uh, catching a panic, adding a backtrace to it, and then sending it back to its like calling Go routine. Um, this was really nice for debugging on when I got paged because yeah, you had the stack trace now for the Go routine that panicked. You were able to manage that automat auto magically. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah, exactly. Nice. What I'm curious about is a bunch of the source graph code isn't using this package. You just started developing it when 118 came out because now you could build essentially these container types, right, around concurrency and use concrete types. So does that mean that you were starting to rip out the concurrency that was in the source graph product and putting your package in? I mean, that's kind of scary because you got code that is essentially working. Yeah. I mean, how did that, were you worried at all about doing that or you were taking the patterns that you already had in source graph code and, you know, generalizing that? Uh, so some of both. I definitely was worried. And when I released the internal version of this package, um, it didn't come along with any, you have to use this package. This was a tool that was available for people to use and... Um, as you're modifying code or adding new code, um, a lot of people chose to use it. In terms of like changing old stuff, um, mostly I did this on a, if I'm already modifying this code and like rechecking its correctness, doing the cycle of tests that I do before merging code, then I'll go ahead and make the change to the new package so we get to the... Um, easier to read and like guarantees about panics that we otherwise wouldn't have. You know, one of the things I try to teach over and over and over again is when you have a problem that can be done concurrently, I always define that as undefined out of order execution. That to me is what concurrency means. Um, to separate the concurrency code with the actual business logic that needs to execute concurrently. If you do that, if you can separate these two things, then replacing your concurrent code with a package like this would be really easy because you're just replacing one set of Go routines and Go routine control for another. The problem is I find too many code bases where these two ideas are intermixed, that are not separated, in which case you can't just go in and replace some of the concurrency control because you've intertwined it inside the business functions as opposed to writing a business function that says, I don't really care if I'm being run serially or concurrently. This is what I need to do and this is what I need to return, right? You might care in the sense of maybe you have a mutex sort of lock in there, but that would be it. That would be the only sort of thing I would want to see in a business function, potentially a mutex. Other than that, I shouldn't be seeing go routines and channels and that should be separated. It is, curious about your thoughts on that same idea. Yeah, no, and I think that's what you just described is uh, practices that Sourcegraph largely already follows. In Sourcegraph's code base, we already have pretty good separation of uh, business logic and concurrency. 
it's a much more it's i guess often a much more like drop-in replacement for a lot of source graphs code because um, we're already effectively using these patterns just manually writing them every time <laughs> copy and pasting them over and over again yeah i am and i we, we i said this to you when we were talking a little bit over email about the package i'm expecting the go team to build at some level what you built in the standard library it may be another year or two because you know how how they really want to make sure things are right like rob pike said it best right like yes is forever so you know before they say yes to those sorts of packages they want to make sure that it's generics is right and everything else at least feels right so um it will be interesting i and you've kind of given them a little bit of a blue uh, of a blueprint kind of on how they could leverage generics and some of the things that are already needed in the wild yeah and you know i think they they said this too at one point like we're not going to merge anything into the standard library immediately as soon as we um release generics because we kind of want to see what the community does with it first um and so this is me being the community and seeing what i can do with it the the package that i built is somewhat opinionated um, and it's probably more opinionated than uh, the standard library team normally uh, likes to be. So I, I'm, I'm sure that the anything that the language team would build is going to be like making different trade-offs than I did. I, I think opinionated is good, Camden. If you're not opinionated and you don't have some sort of um, guidelines and philosophies you're following, then the package will become wishy-washy. It will become too generic and it will be impossible for anybody to use. So I like when these types of packages are heavily opinionated. If they fall in line with your project, great. If not, now, is this the first real open source package you put out there? Because I, I have a bunch of them, right? And I'm constantly checking and I've just looked at yours. You've got three pull requests already and and two issues and i haven't looked at what they are yet but <laughs> i mean what is you do you feel this is interesting right i feel a responsibility to answer those issues and look at those pull requests in fact i had my email was broken for like six months on github and i had no idea i felt horrific because there was stuff there that was like old so what do you feel about now the more people see this, the more they're going to use it, the more they're going to ask for, the more bugs you're going to find. Is this something that you're going to be allowed to put in that time into to, to maintain it? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I have a, I feel a personal responsibility to um, respond to people, um, even if the response is just no. <laughs> um, but like the the project has seen a lot of engagement so far. We've had like I think like thirty pull requests that have gone come through and a handful of issues. And like I would want to be like have a response for all of these um, because these are people that cared enough to check out my project, to like try it out, to find something wrong with it, and to like reach out to me to make it better. I, in terms of like whether Sourcecraft will continue to give me the the space to do that, I 
based on Sourcegraph's historical behavior, I would say yes. Um, but also I do spend personal time on this as well um, because it's important to me to support people that are, I don't know, engaging with my project. And maybe you get lucky enough where other people come in that you can trust to, to also maintain. I mean, this sort of package has been really needed. I think companies have built their own form of this in one form or the other. But if you're going to have really nasty sort of bugs like the panics, it's usually in the concurrency code. And so I've been really wanting for the for the Go the Go team to build something in the standard library so we could stop all copy and pasting and building our own patterns in one form or another. So this is exciting. I, I think we're we're maybe get there in a couple of years. So this is this is cool. Yeah, I'm excited about it. All right. So and if you're starting new projects and you know there's going to be some concurrency involved, definitely look at the source graph uh conk, right? C O N C. I'm saying that right. Check that out. And you know, Camden's there to to help support that. And the more people that use it, the better the better will be. But we are out of time, Camden. I mean, I could talk to you for another hour, dude. This is I hate how fast great. time goes <laughs> by. But um so if anybody wanted to reach out to you after hearing the show, what is the best way for people to reach out if they had questions? Yeah, uh, you can reach out to me at my email at camden at sourcegraph.com. Um, or if you're checking out Conk, feel free to reach out in the, the issues there. Brilliant. We'll get all that on the show notes as well. All right. Thank you so much for spending all this time with us today. I'm excited for people to you know, gain access to the show and hear all that. It's a great story, dude. I, I really love, I love the stories where people start out kind of in one sort of space, like the bio side, and then they end up becoming, I mean, you're going to be an engineer, I think anyway, but the fact that you became an engineer at Sourcegraph and you're doing that kind of engineering is, I thought, I think it's pretty cool. Fun transition. Yeah. Uh, all right. This is Camden and Bill Kennedy signing off at the Arn Labs podcast and hope to see everybody again real soon.